the Pharisees, so one of these ancient religious laymen within Judaism, asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So the invitation went to Jesus. Jesus was an invited guest. So he went to the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And when a woman of that town, who was a sinner, we're told, learned that Jesus was dining at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfumed oil. And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair and kissed them and anointed them with perfumed oil, the feet of Jesus. Verse 39, now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, they said to himself, the Pharisee said to himself, if this man were truly a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this who is touching him, that she is a sinner. So Jesus answered him and he said, Simon, we learn his name, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. That's dangerous if you're talking to God, talking to Jesus, say it, teacher. A certain creditor, so he begins to tell a parable, a certain creditor had two debtors, two debtors. One of them owed him, owed him 500 silver coins and the other 50. Now, when they could not pay, he canceled the debts of both, 550 silver coins. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? And Simon answered, he said, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss of greeting, which was a normal greeting back then, by the way. But from, time that I, from the time I entered, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfumed oil. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, are forgiven. Thus, she loved much, but the one who forget, is forgiven little loves little. And so Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I want to offer a prayer and just point out some few things in this passage as we begin this new year together. If you're willing, join with me and uh, I just want to pray. Lord, thank you for the wonderful conversation, the food, the celebrating of this new year that we have had last night and today, this new calendar year. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunities that we have for newness in life. We thank you that there are times that it is good to reset relationships, time to set new patterns for a new year. And so, God, we want to yield to that in our lives, time to extend grace, time to say, how will that grace enable me to walk differently in this new year? So we embrace that today. As we look at the story of the church, the early church, the pre-church in this case, and Jesus and the table and the uninvited guest. In your name, Lord Jesus, I pray. And if you're willing to, say amen. 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 Uh, one more, just let's, can we give it up a way of thanks to uh, Josh and the food prep team and everyone that served so far this morning. Thank you. And like I said, we're exploring and we'll be doing all sorts of analyzing and thinking through um, how maybe we can continue this in new ways. 
Uh, by the way, towards the end of the gathering, there will be an offering. Our normal offering, tithes and offerings are what support our church. If you're here and you want to give some extra to help support offset the food costs, which is coming out of my outreach budget line, which I have not yet figured out for 2023 with the finance team, but I believe that they love me enough that we will figure it out. Uh, <laughs> if not, this will be the first and last because no. <laughs> so if you're willing to, you can do that. You can give in the plates. You can give electronically. All that will be during a song or after service. You can do that as well. But I just want to say thank you in advance for that. So this story of the uninvited dinner guest, the woman who shows up, and I just want to point out a few things as we walk through this text. Quickly though, before I do that, I want you to turn towards your neighbor at your table, and I have a question that I want you to discuss just for a minute or two, okay? Have you ever been to a meal, this is the setup, have you ever been to a meal where there was an awkward or uninvited guest? How did it go? What made it strange? in that place, a time, and event. So talk amongst yourselves for just like a minute and a half, two minutes. Have you ever been in a place where there was an uninvited guest, um, a meal where there was an awkward or uninvited guest? How did it go? What made it strange in that place and time? And you know, why, why was it strange? Why was it awkward? So turn towards each other and discuss that question for about a minute and a half. Have you ever been at a thing, uninvited, awkward guest? What made it awkward? What made it strange? You're gonna have to talk with one another. This is part of the deal. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw your attention back here. Uh, I, it sounds like there have been lots of stories that are being told here, and uh, I think I overheard a story of a family situation over here. No, I just heard a family now. Uh, does anyone want to share one? Uh, anyone have like one at your table that you want to volunteer as a story of an awkward situation with a guest or an uninvited guest at, a, at an event or a meal or whatever context? Who has volunteered uh, anyone from your table? Maybe they're too personal. <laughs> Church, we want to normalize awkwardness, right? No. Okay, just just Chan, please. At our, at our wedding, actually, we had someone bring a plus one. Oh, hang on, Harry's bringing your mic. Uh, oh, I have a mic. <laughs> don't name names. We'll, we'll we'll expunge this from the recording. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> Um, yeah, at our wedding, we had someone bring a plus one, and she was very boisterous and noisy, and um, we didn't know what to say. And then at my bouquet toss, I threw the bouquet, and then she like elbowed everybody out of the way and grabbed the bouquet, and yeah, it was it was very interesting guest. So a wedding crasher, huh? Uh, okay, all right. Anyone else want to share a story? I, I think that's safe. I don't think any. Uh, no names were named in this. Anyone else have one of an awkward guest, or maybe you were the awkward guest? That's a story of my life, going to ministry. Here they are. All right. Well, thank you for sharing that. So as we look at this passage a little bit more, let's, let's just draw some things out, okay? Are, are you game for this for a few minutes with me? Yeah? Say yes? Okay. Uh, elbow your neighbor till they say yes? Okay. Uh, um, so first of all, I'll remind you that this is... What's going on in this context is the ancient world would have been something called a symposium in the Greek culture, and then the Romans sort of modified that. And so they generally had a a meal, and then they would have a a show or a debate, as it were, or discussion. And so this is kind of the format of what's going on. They ate together. They would have been at reclining tables, uh, the the tables where they would have been low tables, not like tables that we're seated at. They would have had cushions. 
um, that they, the men would have sort of leaned back on. And depending on if it was a Greek or Roman style, and depending on how much this particular ancient Jewish religious leader uh, uh, was multicultural in terms of the Greco-Roman culture. There may have been women, there may not have been women there. Um, and so they would have leaned back, lined back, and then they would have been served along the side, the food, by servants of the household. And so that's how they would have, and they would have had the meal, and they would have transitioned towards more drinking. Uh, there is no drinking here at Breakfast Church, praise the Lord. Uh, but, uh, you know, well, that's between you and Jesus and later. Um, so this is why Breakfast Church, not Dinner Church. Uh, so anyway, yeah. And so there would have been a lot of different things going on in terms of conversation. So it was meal and conversation, structured and unstructured. But there would have definitely been cultural things that would have been expectations in terms of how you interacted with the different guests that were there. And so at the center of the table would have been the most important guest and the host as well. And so, and the host would have had someone else in their household actually hosting the meal and all of the elements going on with that as well. So this was put on by Simon the Pharisee. And one of the things that Luke brings out to us immediately, a first century Jew would have had some questions about this Pharisee hosting a meal on the Sabbath. So he was already kind of, hmm, it seems like he was questionable in terms of how Hellenized, how much he had become bi and tricultural with the Greco-Roman culture around him. And it was a reality, of course, that many of these aspects did come within into first century Judaism. So this meal is sort of a mixed cultural expression already. And if he's doing it on the Sabbath, raises a bunch of questions for others. How religious was this man exactly? And uh, so these elements were brought into many of the Jewish practices. The Babylonian Talmud speaks of this as well. So the second thing I want to point out, so first of all, it was a kind of a symposium structure. Second thing was cultural blending. And the Pharisee, again, had absorbed some Greek and Roman cultural practice. And in Judaism of the time, this was a huge debate between the Hellenized Jews. Hellenized is just another word for becoming more Greek-like or that Greek culture. How much of that did they bring into to their culture and how much should they reject of that? And this was a rip-roaring debate for, for a couple centuries during this time. How Hellenized can you become before you're completely giving up what it means to be a truly righteous Jewish person of this day? Uh, one, um, and so now the banquet begins to transition, and one commentator says this, it's almost as if Simon the Pharisee were to say, all right now, miracles of healing and such aside, come to my house, let's have a serious, rational conversation about your philosophical position, Jesus. And so he was inviting him into this, what could have become really Jesus kind of put on the stand after dinner. Have you ever been put on the stand at a dinner? How many of you have ever been put on the stand? Anybody in your family ever put you on a spot in a meal? Oh, come on now, if you've lived any amount of life, I'm sure at some point a parent, a sibling, somebody has put you on the stand at a meal. And that's kind of what's beginning to happen, I think, we're told with some of the the elements that we see in this reading here. So it goes on, the story goes on in verse 37, and it says this next, a woman uh, in the city who was a sinner came to see Jesus. Like she's named as a sinner in the text Remember the context, ancient Judaism, so there were categories for these things of sinner and clean and unclean. There's debate about what was she. Um, some traditional scholars have said that she was maybe a prostitute, a public woman, as it were. But several other scholars point out that the nature of the sinfulness isn't actually fully defined here. We don't know that for sure. Some have really gone off on that. We don't know that for sure. It may have been. Uh, we don't know. But she was definitely identified as a sinner, a spiritual outcast. And any church that wants to make a difference in the world needs to know 
that performing and hiding and pretending that we have it all together is simply not effective for our own transformation and certainly for anyone else. Nobody wants to play those religious games anymore in post-Christian North America. Praise the Lord. Uh, But here we see this. And I like how Tim Keller puts this. He said, when a Christian sees prostitutes, alcoholics, prisoners, drug addicts, unwed mothers, the homeless, refugees, he or she knows that they are looking in a mirror. Perhaps the Christian spent all of their life as a respectable middle-class person. No matter, Tim goes on and says, he thinks, spiritually, I was just as this person was, though maybe physically and socially, I was never where they are now. They are outcasts, but spiritually speaking, I was also an outcast. And so this, uh, I think it's important to understand some of the dynamics that's going on in this meal. So this woman has made much money, apparently. She has an alabaster box of ointments, of perfume. And the perfume would have been very uh, costly as well, we're told. And the disciples in Matthew and Mark, in a similar story, are appalled when this kind of ointment or perfume is poured out and wasted instead of given to the poor. So now there's another dynamic at play here as well, that we are called to work for justice and poverty and compassion, and yet we bring that together in tension with living in the world in wherever we find ourselves as well. There's a story, uh, a rather research author, Avery Gilbert, uh, talks about this idea of, from scientists of how many smells are there. Today this room is full of smells, and not just the smell of your neighbor, but the smell of the food. <laughs> We are full of smells. And there's some chemists and researchers and fragrant manufacturers who suggest humans can detect between 10,000 and 30,000 different smells. And that no two people smell things the exact same way. I have a large nose. I won't stand in profile for you. You can look uh, you know, cautiously later. I always joke with my kids about the nose knows, the nose knows about things. So anyway, between 10,000 and 30,000 different smells, and every one of us smells a little bit differently because of our DNA. And they go on and say there's about 400 genes coding for the receptors in your nose. And there's more than 900,000 variations of those genes. So this woman breaks open or brings this, this alabaster jar, and she pours out this oil, this fragrant oil, on the feet of Jesus, the woman who is a sinner. The woman, the fourth thing I want to point out from this story is that there's a lot of curiosity and discomfort that now has been exposed in the room. You know those awkward guest stories you were telling? Right now, that awkward guestness is going way up off the charts. Not only did she come in, which was not totally uncommon for people to wander in, but she now breaks open a jar and anoints the feet of a male. And in the ancient Jewish culture, even like many of our cultures today, there were strong rules about how men and women interacted if they were not married or going to be married. And she begins breaking those things. She loosens her hair. She lets down her hair, which is something that you just did not do in public company, which indicates a level of intimacy and immodesty in public. And he, she washes his feet with her tears and wipes them with her hair. Can you imagine that? The level of awkwardness is off the charts, way more than someone standing up in the middle of one of my teachings and walking out. I mean, we are way beyond that level of awkward. Oh, sorry, that was a bit of shameless shaming. Okay, okay, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. Way off the chart, she is weeping uncontrollably, sobbing, and wiping the feet of Jesus. This act of worship defies both Gentile and Jewish custom of the time. 
The use of the costly ointment, the using of the hair, the running down the hair, the whole thing. And she's expressing, we are told, gratitude and affection because she experienced something in Jesus that radically changed her life so much so that she did not care what anyone else or cultural convention said in that room. And like any town in the ancient world, small town, word gets out. Indeed, we're reading about it 2,000 years later. Word got out. (laughs) She was freed. One of the ancient church fathers, Gregory the Great, sees beauty and irony, and he says the ointment once used for her body unworthily now is offered as worship to the Lord. What was used in destructiveness and lowering herself and her own self-worth issues now becomes something that empowers her in the act of worship. In Luke 3.16, John the Baptist says he was not even, John the Baptist, who was baptizing people for repentance, a prophet in the wilderness in ancient Israel, one of the people that would have been recognized as ritually and religiously pure and right and all of that, in fact, denouncing sin of the nation, John the Baptist said he was not even worthy to untie the sandals of the one who came after him, Jesus. And here this woman is anointing and washing the feet of Jesus with tears and ointment and her hair. Feet are of an offensive nature. And everyone said, amen. (laughs) If you went into a restaurant and everyone's wearing open-toed shoes or sandals, depending on the nature of the meal, you may find that disturbing. Others of you may just ignore it entirely. (laughs) And in the ancient world, feet certainly were because you would walk in dusty trails and there would be basins and the ho- basins and the host or the host servants of the home would make sure that you had an opportunity to wash your feet to remove the grime and the dirt of the sandaled walking through these warm cultures, warm climate cultures in the dusty roads. Feet are offensive, but it's interesting given what she does towards Jesus' feet. And those in that room that knew the Jewish scriptures would have known the prophet Isaiah in 57, verse chapter 52, 7 in our modern Bible says this, how beautiful it is to see approaching over the mountains, the feet of a messenger who announces peace, a messenger who brings good news, who announces deliverance, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Some of them would have begun making a prophetic connection to what's going on here. And the guests would have been getting very Curious or discomforted as well, just like some of you may be during my talk here this morning. Curious and discomforted. She does not speak. She just weeps and washes and anoints the feet of Jesus, however long it takes. I've shared this story before, but Mark Buchanan, pastor who was a pastor in D.C., talks about this. And he said, this tells a story of an alcoholic named Wanda. In an article some 10, 12 years ago, Mark told the story that Wanda had been struggling with her addiction and she did well for about eight months, got into the Alpha course and into a 12-step program, and she got her kids back, but then she didn't do well. And she had been in and out of mostly of rehab, but mostly out of rehab, and then she vanished. And then one day she called again completely sober after a year of rehab in Vancouver. Didn't say whether it's Washington or BC. This is the real Vancouver, so I'm going with BC. (laughs) But it's an American story, so I don't know. He says she was getting out of the rehab, and she, she asked, she called rather, and said, could she come home? In her first Sunday back, Mark says, I initially didn't recognize her. She looked healthy. She was dressed and in her right mind. You know, when someone who's been through 
a trial, whether it's addiction or deep loss, and then how the appearance changes, whether it's from just being overwhelmed by grief or overwhelmed by the control of these other substances, but then when they come clean or when they come through that to a new understanding or wrestling with that grief, the appearance changes. And he said, I initially didn't recognize her. She looked healthy, dressed, and in her right mind. And he says, I was preaching on the story of 10 lepers Jesus healed, and one, a Samaritan, returned to give thanks. And I said this, that anyone who's been cleansed cleansed by Jesus, who wants to be made whole by him, worships at the feet in deep thankfulness, in utmost desperation. They have nowhere else they want to go. And then to close, he said, I reminded people, we have a tradition in our church. Anyone can come up to the front and pray with one of our prayer team. And so Wanda came forward at the close of this service, and she didn't go to a prayer minister, though. She walked straight up onto the platform of the church between the guitarist and the drummer. Can you imagine that as well? Awkward guess. And she stretched her hands towards heaven and she worshiped like one leper returning, Mark said. A woman who didn't know her and who isn't on the prayer team walked up and put her arm around her and worshiped too. And then you could hear it. All of us worshiped with deeper thankfulness out of great and greater desperation. Out of the storeroom had come new treasures as well as old. And the kingdom of God came very near. This woman introduced all of them to what we might call a numinous experience or a liminal experience, a sense where the justice and reign and goodness and peace and restoration of God comes near to our world as is, and there becomes an empowering experience. She is experiencing this, and she is inviting others around them. So let's get to the very last piece of this. In verse 39, the host thinks... And displays the wrong kind of religiosity. The host in his mind says, Jesus must not be a prophet. Aha, I caught him. I invited him to my, deal, my, my dinner, my symposium. And Jesus now has been outed as a false teacher by this woman who he's letting touch his feet, who is a notorious sinner. And if he was a prophet, he would know by divine knowledge that this woman should not be touching him because she will make him unclean and all of that. The host has his aha moment. The host is a poster boy for false holiness. The host is a poster boy for what's wrong with so much of Christianity in North America. Surface level Christianity, but not deep life change that transforms people for generations. And it is at precisely the point that Jesus knows this woman's sin, but that her sin cannot overcome what is in him, his power to forgive and set people free. What is in Jesus is greater than whatever this woman has experienced So much so greater that not only does he not condemn her, being in his presence begins to change her at a deeper level. Friends, I want you to know this morning that there is a kind of work of the spirit of Jesus that that is powerful, that brings change. Not from false holiness, but from the power of his supernatural, forgiving, empowering love. Jesus is a spirit-guided prophet because the Holy Spirit gives him a word of knowledge about the man's thoughts here as well. So if you look quickly at verses 37 and 39 there as we move towards the end of this passage, we see here that Jesus discerns his thoughts. Jesus says in verse 40, answering him, it says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon says, say it, teacher. (laughs) And Jesus knows what he's thinking, and now he exposes it to the man. He exposes the false kind of religiosity. The kind of thing that doesn't change anybody. The kind of thing that nobody wants in their lives. Jesus begins to expose that. The spirit filled Jesus and has given the very thoughts in this man's head to bring the kingdom of God to bear in the situation. 
And not, but he doesn't directly shame him. Note how he does this. He doesn't shame Simon at first anyway. He says, I know your thoughts, but you are wrong. He doesn't say that. He begins to tell a story. He uses knowledge to teach. And then prophetically, he will move to a denouncement of this. It's interesting. Jesus' response to those of us that are very religious, he does tell stories. He does tell parables. But sometimes he just straight up pronounces woes and judgment. And that's been recorded in all the the gospels. Seven woes, the eight woes, six woes. And so he's dealing with this spirit that has to be ripped out of our hearts. When we think that we control God by our religious systems and programs, God has to sometimes be quite direct. If we're not getting the story the first time, then he may come much harder at us to get us free from that. Because what happens is we are bound and we bind others in this religiosity, this performative religious stuff. But there's a true religion. There's bad religion and there's good religion. Jesus comes to confront that bad religion that binds people and the one who bears it. So verse 40, at the table, Jesus' approach is different, by the way, like I said, in the courtyards and the synagogues and the temple. He's a little more calm at the table, but he also pronounces woes in public places. Jesus reads his mind and addresses him in a personal and intimate way for Simon and names him. And he does this in a way using the story, which would have been appropriate for the symposium. I like how Fred Craddock wrote, he said, understanding of righteousness, which causes him to distance himself from her. Jesus understands righteousness to mean moving towards her with forgiveness and a blessing of peace. Those who are truly holy, those who are walking with Jesus, can enter into the pain of others and are not afraid that that pain will completely undo them. Because there's a sense of the love of God in me and in you is greater than the pain of the world around us and that it needs our willingness to engage with others. What is in Jesus is greater than what is in her. The religious fear that, but Jesus brings himself into the situation and her life is changed. Lots of progressives and conservatives don't truly believe in their own ideologies. can stand to be challenged, by the way. But what is overcome when we bring people together? False purity is overcome of ideologies. False reducing others to being less than human in our little subtle ways. It is in closeness It is in real life that change happens. All right. Well, I got to move on and get this landed because otherwise you guys are going to be like, no, never again. That's feedback too, right? So Simon's debts and faults are now put on display by Jesus. Number seven in the story. Simon's debts and faults are put on display. So what does Jesus do? Then Jesus says, by the way, Simon, when I came here, you didn't offer me anything to wash my feet when I came in. That would have been, by the way, bad host. Like if I offered you food, but I didn't offer you a plate or utensils or cutlery trying to think of something similar. We don't wash feet anymore, but you know, you didn't offer me that. You didn't offer me any of these things. An honored guest may be anointed with oil. If he's truly an honored guest, it's an act of honor. Simon doesn't anoint Jesus with oil, but the woman does. Notice that the hospitality in Jesus' world was not simply entertaining people. It was the process of receiving outsiders and inviting them to become insiders from strangers to guests. And this is the idea of how a Christian ought to live their life, that we are bringing people who are outsiders and bringing them to become insiders. We are helping the awkward guests become part of the spiritual family. And that is what worship gatherings on Sundays and small groups in our homes and even when we overlap our different circles in life. We are called to do that, that we should be the most hospitable people on the planet. That's what Christians were known for in the ancient world. Their hospitality was outrageous. They invited people that they should not invite to their table. They invited them in. Showing hospitality 
to new one, new people and strangers and outsiders, the immigrant, the alien, preserving and retaining honor, bringing everyone into the circle of honor. The host was to protect the honor of the guest, and yet Jesus was not treated this way by Simon, and now Jesus points it out. One scholar put it this way, the stranger who comes as a guest never leaves with the same status they entered. And by the way, if you're new here and you've never been to a pilgrim thing, and again, we're experimenting today and I'm still long-winded, my apologies, uh, you don't leave with the same status you enter today. You've encountered other people who are wrestling with Jesus and the spirit of love and the spirit of the transforming work of Jesus in this place. You don't leave the same way. You have been touched by other lives. And that happens all the time. We have the power to do that for one another. In this ancient culture, every gesture was full. Every gesture was freighted with meaning. And omissions could be seen as a slight. And Jesus points out that this woman has now taken over the role of the host by welcoming him with loving gestures of hospitality. So finally, we leave you with this. At the very end, Jesus speaks to this woman and tells her, your sins are forgiven. You are forgiven. You are released. And they start freaking out. Who is this to forgive sins? You came to my symposium. You came to my dinner. And now you're forgiving sins of people that are known to be sinners in our community at my dinner, in my house, at my table. You're doing that, Jesus? Who is this to forgive sins? And it's often said when people wrestle with, where is Jesus at? How, what did Jesus say about himself? Jesus never said the words, I am God, like that. But he did say a lot of other words that said the exact same thing, including he used the phrase, I am, which would have been directly back to Moses hearing from the Lord in the wilderness wanderings of ancient Israel. But the religious leaders in that group, when they heard this guy forgiving sins, because in that context, there's only one who can forgive those kinds of sins, and it is God himself, and it is through the religious process of the temple and the priests and all of these sacrifices and all the things. And here Jesus is just saying, I have forgiven you. You are forgiven. Go in peace. Who is this? Who does he think he is? Does he think he's God? Well, turns out, (laughs) he's doing the acts of God. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Faith in Jesus is what releases this forgiveness of the divine, of God, of the creator. And she is able to receive and accept grace in the way that this religious Pharisee, Simon, could not. Jesus told the parable, one man was forgiven of 50 and one was forgiven of 500. Which one do you think was more grateful? Simon forgot that his 50 might as well have been 50,000. He was forgiven of his debt. And now Jesus has released and she has experienced freedom from hers. The story here screams, and I'll leave you with this final word. The story screams there's a need for the church but not just any church, not a bad religion church. We don't need any of that. that. That hurts all of us. But churches that say, you're welcome here. Because what's in us? The power of God's love, transforming love, everyone needs. Because we're going to try to suck identity out of all different things that ultimately may be good things, but they cannot be ultimate things. But God's love, that is what changes people in the short term and the long term, again and again and again.